are finishing uh, chapter 1 of 2 Peter today, so verses 16 to 21. And uh, before we dive into those verses, I kind of want to have two kind of concepts, two themes to frame uh, us looking at this passage. So the first one is this idea of experience or our feelings and then that relation to using uh, the term words broadly. So words or uh, in, in a Christian context, I believe the Bible, the scriptures, and, and the canon, which is just the technical term, which means the grouping of books that we find authoritative for our faith. So this relation uh, between experience or feelings and words. And so what I want to ask is what guides our knowing of God? And even more broadly, what guides our knowing of all of reality? Um, what guides our beliefs? What guides our doctrines? Doctrines just being a fancy word for beliefs because those things then dictate how we live, what we do. They shape our actions. And so uh, if we're aware, we have, we have phrases in our, in our culture that say, well, this doesn't feel right. And so then that feeling will then dictate and guide how you're going to act, how you're going to react. Or we're a go-with-our-gut kind of people. We go with what feels right on the inside, what makes sense. And so is experience, is our feelings by themselves, are they sufficient as a standard to guide our faith, to guide our practice? And what I mean by that is sufficient meaning do, do we just need them alone? We can just go by experience. We can just go with our gut. We don't need anything else to then guide and influence or explain or interpret or clarify what we're experiencing, what we're feeling. So uh, just picture yourself for, for a quick example. Ladies, picture yourself as a Matilda. Uh, I think the vote for the guys was Mortimer since we have a Frank now. So we've changed to Mortimer. If you listen to the podcast, the, the podcast, five people that listen to you to the podcast. So picture yourself as a Matilda or a Mortimer. And so Matilda, you just won the lottery. Mortimer, you just got canned. You just got fired from work. So from this experience alone, what can we understand about Matilda's life or Mortimer's life or make sense of their experience? Well, we would know we would need some understanding of a worldview of whether we just say, well, Matilda got lucky, just a worldview of chance, or do we understand God's sovereignty? Do we assume Matilda was a good person and Mortimer was a jerk because he got fired? Um, I have a boss, he couldn't tell you one iota about Hinduism, but he is a firm believer in karma. Adamantly, we'll, we'll talk about it when bad things happen to bad people or people that he determines are bad. It's just karma. They're just getting what they deserve. So our feelings are guiding these things. But we know we need more than just experiences. We know we need words. And so this brings us to this next second kind of concept we want to frame our discussion today is guardrails. And Bill, if you've been here for our Second Peter series, essentially in his first three weeks, he's kind of set these two pillars or, or frameworks as he's worked through the passage so far. And so if, if I can summarize Bill's last two weeks, uh, we need to have a content of our faith, which he touched on in week one or week two, uh, which is the gospel. And we need to know that the gospel is simple. We can define it very simply or summarize it very simply as Christ died to save sinners. We can very easily summarize the gospel, but we also know the gospel is a little bit more complex in that it encompasses everything from creation, which we see in the book of Genesis, to new creation, which we see at the end of the book of Revelation. So we have, guard, we have a content of the faith that we need guardrails for, and then as we saw last week, we have a character of our faith, that as we understand our identity, as we understand the gospel, then our life changes and we exhibit the family characteristics that we looked at last week. 
And so again, going back to our first point, does experience alone provide the guardrails? Is experience enough to provide the guardrails for the content of our faith and the character of our faith? And I think Revolve, if you've been coming here for a long time, you would know that the answer is, well, no, it's not sufficient alone. But in our broader culture, we have terms like my truth that we're very much creating a saturated um, people that think of truth as something that's subjective is the technical term. That your truth is true for you, but it may not be true for me. A two plus two doesn't always equal four, as if you saw any of the blow up on that from a few years ago in social media. And so we have to understand that this culture that says my truth, well, this can and will creep into the church at times. That if you're in a Christian Bible study, sometimes you've heard the phrase, well, what does this passage mean to me? And I don't think that anyone has any ill intent or insidious motives when they say that, but that phrase is very ambiguous. It could mean uh, or come across meaning that this passage has a meaning specific to that individual that may not be the meaning for another individual. But as we interpret the Bible, we know the Bible has one interpretation, but it can have many applications. And so it's not that this, what does this passage mean to me? It's what does this passage mean? And then what is the application for my life? And so we have this tension in our culture that we're very much aware of between people's feelings and their experiences. And this is becoming the ground and the guardrail for how they are interacting and, and shaping their beliefs and how they are functioning in society. We see this in the continued um, sexual revolution that has continued from the 60s into all the tensions we have today between issues of sexuality, issues of gender roles, issues of politics, issues of all these things where our feelings are being driven largely due to social media and many other factors. This week I saw an article that our State Department is sending $20,000 to Ecuador for inclusivity training. They're to have three workshops, they're to have 12 drag performances, and they're to have a two-minute documentary because this is the worldview and the understanding that is guarding our culture at large, and then they're living in light of that. Obviously, I disagree with that and the basis behind it, but they're living, attempting to live consistently with what their worldview is. And these guardrails are important as we look ahead in 2 Peter because, as we'll see next week, Bill's going to touch on this idea that false teachers will be coming into the church. It's inevitable. They are coming, and we need to understand what guides the content of our faith and what guides the character of our faith. And so with those two things in mind, wrestling through experience and words, through guardrails, we're going to dive into 2 Peter uh, verses 16 if you have your Bible or your scripture journal with you. And so I'm going to read this, and then we're just going to go back and make some comments. Uh, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along 
by the Holy Spirit. And may God bless the reading of his word. So going back to verse 16, we see this word for, and Bill is excellent at pointing out these conjunctions. And so we're going to take an interpretive principle from Schoolhouse Rock, and we're going to ask the question, conjunction, junction, what is your function? So what is this word for doing? Well, for is looking back, and then it's looking at what came before in Peter's letter, and then it's going to further clarify, it's going to further explain what he meant from before. So going back in verses 12 to 15, we see that Peter intends to remind them of, as we said, the content of the faith, the gospel, and then the character of the faith, gospel living. And then in verse 15, he wants to make every effort so that after his departure, they can then recall these things that they are establishing and remind themselves of it. And so this four is looking forward as to why. Why can Peter be eager to remind them? Why can Peter want them to recall these things that he is telling them? And so it's because that they did not follow cleverly devised myths when they made known to them the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's interesting that Peter has the eyes singular in verses 12 to 15, but now he's switching to we because he's giving grounds, he's giving justification of the report of what they have declared and made known to them. So there's corroboration. It's not just Peter by himself. He had James and John, as we'll see, with him. And they weren't following clever devised myths. They made known that Christ is coming again, his second coming, and they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so what Peter is referring to there is the transfiguration. So that's back in the Gospels. You see that James, John, and Peter, Jesus brings them up to this holy mountain, and then his glory is manifested in front of them. And so Peter and his and James and John, they were eyewitnesses of this incredible moment. They experienced it. And so going back to our intro, we're not saying that experience does not mean anything. It is valid. That we can, it's one thing to see a picture of the Grand Canyon. It's another thing to actually be there and experience the Grand Canyon and see it with your own eyes. And so, um, Peter, again, he's the power in coming. This could be translated powerful coming. They have made known that Christ is coming again. And the ground of that, how they can justify this claim, is because not that they heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy but they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter is connecting the transfiguration with Christ's second coming. So if you think of his second coming as the blockbuster movie that won't disappoint, uh, sorry, uh, the transfiguration is very much like the movie trailer. It's building the anticipation for this huge event that will be coming into the future. And this idea of Christ's second coming is a major theme throughout the rest of Peter's epistle, as we'll see. Continuing on, verse 17 and 18, we see this word for again. So again, this is looking back to verse 16, and Peter is going to further clarify what he's just said. So he says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, so Christ received honor and glory from the Father, a voice was born to him by the majestic glory. So it's just a, a way of Peter referring to the Father, that the voice came out of heaven, it came out of the cloud, it is a speaking from the Father, and he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's further explaining the eyewitness of the transfiguration. Again, in verse 18, Peter's emphasizing, it's not just me. Peter, or James and John were with me. We all saw this. We all experienced this. We can corroborate our stories. 
But this is critical because now we've shifted from an eyewitness. They just saw this experience, but they weren't left alone with this experience to then come up with what it means. That the voice boomed from heaven that explains and interprets the, uh, this experience for them. And so this is uh, kind of a, a technical term, but this is this idea that you see through the scriptures of what's called word act revelation. And it sounds fancier than it really is. It's basically that God's word and God's actions reveal to us who he is. It reveals to us his nature, his character, what he values. But his actions, and this is where the importance of it comes, his actions are always interpreted by his words. That God's actions are not left to us to speculate what they mean. He, God, interprets them for us. And so we see this uh, in the book of Exodus. We see that God, based upon his promises to these guys, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their descendants were slaves in Egypt. And so God's saying, look, in light of the promise that I've given to these people, I'm going to free Israel from slavery. And so Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh this. Pharaoh doesn't listen. And so then we have what's the 10, we know is the 10 plagues, but these are signs and wonders. This is a powerful experience that God is doing that he has already interpreted before. And so we have introductory word leading up to the powerful action. And then after God has powerfully redeemed them, he's brought them out to the mountain. He then gives them the Mosaic covenant. He gives further word, further interpretation of how this people that he has saved is supposed to live. That He gives the content of the faith, if we can use those terms, that God has redeemed them by his grace, by his promises, by his mercy, and then the character of the faith as we see in the Mosaic covenant. Uh, as Bill was doing his um, uh, sermon last week, it, it struck me that he touched on the bookends of Peter's life with the, the fish stories. So at each end of kind of Peter's experience with Jesus, Jesus has them cast the net and they catch a large amount of fish after getting nothing. And so even that initial story is, is essentially a word act revelation that Jesus says, look, Peter, cast your net again. You fished all night, you didn't catch anything, just trust me, throw the net out again, and he catches an overwhelming amount of fish. Peter isn't left alone to then interpret what this mammoth amount of fish means. Jesus says, look, Peter, I will make you a fisher of men. You have a word, Jesus says, cast. You have the action that the fish are caught. And then Jesus says, look, this, what this means, it means you're going to fish for men on my behalf. You're going to fish for me. And so Peter and company didn't just experience seeing Jesus' majesty. They didn't just experience the transfiguration and then left to their own interpretation the father's voice boomed and gave them what they needed to know. So how were they to interpret this incredible, overwhelming display of God's glory? The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this, this phrase, beloved son and well pleased, is kind of a, a blending together of two Old Testament references. We see in Psalm 2 which is a great messianic psalm, and, uh, or Christ, or anointed one, or the Davidic king, we, say, we see that God says to the king, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and I have installed you on my holy mountain. And so we see that in this phrase, where they're on the mountaintop, God is saying, look, this is my son. Who is the Davidic king? Who will be the ruler of the nations? Who has all authority and, guess what, is going to come back with that authority and judge the living and the dead? And so that second part is with whom he is well pleased. Well, this is 
alluding to the servant songs in the prophet Isaiah, who says that there's this servant that God has chosen in whom he delights, with whom he is well pleased. And so in this one phrase, we see that God the Father is interpreting for the apostles that this Jesus is the king. He is the one promised. He is the one waited for. And then he also is the one who will redeem his people. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will suffer and die and be pierced for our transgressions, but then will see and resurrect and rejoice in the people he has redeemed. So this is Peter further driving home that the transfiguration that they were eyewitnesses of and also heard the voice, their ear witnesses and eyewitnesses, that the second coming that the scoffers that we're going to see later are denying will happen that they witnessed it, they saw it, and then Father boomed and interpreted it for them. And so continuing on, Peter says in verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And so this is uh, a tough verse because as, as I was studying, there's a difficulty in translating it. So it essentially could have two meanings, but they, they both, neither one disproves our point. And so the one is how the ESV translates it, in that this powerful experience confirmed or added further confirmation to the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. The other one is that the idea that it's not a more in terms of better, it's like a superlative. So it's, we have the most reliable and valid, which is the prophetic word of the Old Testament. So it's either further confirmation or we already have something that's very valid and confirmed. But again, that's not contradicting each other because ultimately we know that these scriptures are pointing forward to Christ and giving reliable witness to what we need to know. And so the prophetic word, again, is most likely referring to the Old Old Testament. He's not maybe singling out a particular passage. We see this in Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road when Jesus is talking to these two disciples uh, they don't recognize him, and, and so they're explaining to him the accounts of what happened in Jerusalem, that Jesus died, and, and they thought he was going to be the Davidic king. They thought he was going to be the Messiah. And then Jesus you know, kind of rebukes them and says, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures had testified and witnessed to. And so beginning with the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, referring to the writings, Jesus accounts for them everything in the scriptures that pointed forward to Christ. Paul says this in Romans 3.21, that the law and the prophets attested to or bore witness or looked forward to the righteousness that would come in Christ. Lastly, in John 5, Jesus says, look, you search the scriptures in his debate with the Pharisees because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they, the Old Testament scriptures as a whole, that bear witness about me. And so again, Going back to more fully confirmed, whether it's most confirmed or more fully confirmed, we need to see that miracles, these powerful actions throughout the scriptures, that these, these mighty movements of God's powerful hand don't just convince us of, a, of Jesus' deity. They do that. Obviously, when Jesus calms the wind and the sea, we know, hey, this guy's, this guy's got some power. He's, he's something more than a mere man. They do that. But a biblical theology of signs and miracles shows that they are designed in some way to add further confirmation or uh, to confirm the authority, veracity, and authenticity of God's word. And so, in other words, miracles are not ends to themselves. 
They are always meant to confirm whether a promise or a word or a given revelation from God. Again, going back to the the 10 plagues, we see in Exodus chapter 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, look, let God, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? I don't have him in my pantheon of gods over here. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him and let his people go? Well, Moses had just told him, Yahweh is the God of the Israelites, and he wants you to listen to him. And so we had an introductory word. We had uh, Pharaoh rejecting that word. And then God, with signs and wonders, a powerful arm, redeems his people out of slavery. And so God's powerful act in the ten plagues is confirming the authority of what Moses had told Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. One of my favorite stories of Jesus in the New Testament, I'm just going to read actually from the passage because I think it's so good and, and the flow of Jesus' statement is much better than I could do justice paraphrasing, is in Matthew chapter 9 uh, where Jesus is healing the paralytic. And beginning in verse 2 we read, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. He's saying, you know, Jesus doesn't know this guy. He just, come, he just came to them from a paralytic. He doesn't know what this guy has done. This paralytic hasn't sinned against Jesus in any way, shape, or form. But yet Jesus has the audacity to say, Your sins are forgiven. As if you went, you know, you did something to your neighbor and then the guy two blocks down came down and, and said, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. Your neighbor's going to stand there like, yo, who are you to forgive this guy for, for mowing over my roses? Like, you know, you're, you're down on whatever street. You don't have the authority to do that. You don't have a right to do that. So they, they rightly see this man is blaspheming because they don't believe who he is and who he says he is. So continuing, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? I love that question. The the Pharisees, again, they're not necessarily 100% wrong. The statement of Jesus is equally hard. You can't just come in here and, you know, it's easy with the words, but no, it's weighty in the sense that who are, again, who are we to start forgiving sins of other people that we don't even know, that we don't have any uh, involvement in their situation, or to say rise and walk, which we know, obviously, is very much difficult. And then here's verse 6, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so the action of the paralytic rising from his bed, being able to walk now, isn't an end in itself. Yeah, that was great for the guy. And he rejoiced in that, but his better benefit from this interaction with Jesus is that his sins are forgiven due to his faith and Christ's authority. And so again, powerful actions of God are meant to be either confirming his word or interpreted in light of his word. Continuing on, so we, uh, uh, verse 19, we're looking at the prophetic word, we're looking at the Old Testament scriptures, and so we have the 
apostolic, so James, Peter, John, we have their witness in parallel with the Old Testament scriptures. And we continue, to which, in verse 19, you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And so this is most likely Peter alluding to Psalm 119, 105. Many of you may have it memorized that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That we see in the beginning of the Bible that God's first words brought light out of the formless and void, out of the darkness, essentially, of verse 2. And in verse 3, he says, let there be light. That God's light guides us in a dark place. And if we're honest, the, the, at least the last, I feel like, five to ten years, and I'm sure every generation says this, but it's, it feels like it's a very dark place. That we've had a pandemic, we've had you know, Ukraine, we've had social media and inflation and, and just this vitriol and this hatred that we are constantly spewing back and forth to one another. That this world is a dark place, but that God's light shines through it in his word. That the book of Revelation, it's a super complicated book to interpret, but the main theme, the thrust of Revelation isn't to be something that we you know, put and connect the puzzle pieces and try and figure out the timelines. The thrust of that book is to give hope to God's people, to give encouragement to God's people, to give assurance to God's people that as we look at this dark place around us, as we look at the chaos, as we look at the vitriol and the persecution that comes to God's people that we haven't felt as much, but our brothers and sisters in Africa and the Middle East have felt as they look at their circumstances they can see in the book of Revelation and throughout the scriptures that God wins. That he will create a new heavens and a new earth. That he will wipe every tear from his people's eyes. That he will dwell with us. This is the end. This is God's interpretive word of all the craziness that we see in our world today. That God's word interprets our experiences, not the other way around. Our experiences don't interpret God's word. And so we would do well to pay attention to this prophetic word, verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so this day dawning, this is the day of the Lord. Again, this will be, uh, we'll look at more as we get through Second Peter, that this, this end times, the fancy word is eschatological, uh, when everything kind of comes to order. God, uh, Christ returns in power. He will judge his enemies. He will finally fully save his people. And so when that day comes, we will no longer need the lamp of the prophetic word, or it won't, it won't any longer serve its prophetic purpose, because there will no longer be a dark place, because the day will dawn. And the morning star, which is referring to Christ, there's uh, a couple allusions in the Old Testament and the New Testament to this phrase, but ultimately it's, it's looking at Christ's return, when he rises victoriously. And so his, his ordering of everything, his judging of his enemies, his saving of his people will then instill in us, as it says, in our hearts, we'll have, basically, we'll have hope. And our hope will be realized as we see and look upon his face. And so we would do well to pay attention to the scriptures that's pointing forward and interpreting for us our experiences. Verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And so... In other words, Peter is saying, look, in verse 19, you would do very well to pay attention to this prophetic word. And know this fact, in verse 20, know this about these Old Testament scriptures, that no prophecy 
comes from someone's own interpretation. That these prophets of old weren't sitting down with their astrology charts and they weren't uh, doing little incantations and, and mood crystals and all these stones to try and figure out what was going on. They weren't looking at the star's alignments to then interpret for themselves. No, these prophets, as Peter says in verse 21, they were, were not produced by the will of man. Their interpretation didn't come from their striving, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, we see verse 21, that four, Peter's further clarifying what he's just said, that these prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the beauty of that too, I think in, in verse 21, is we see that little nugget of what later becomes the doctrine of the Trinity that we in some ways take for granted because we've had the church establish it for 2,000 years. Um, but it, it was something they wrestled with, this idea that we have one God, but then how do we make sense of him in three persons? But here we see that men spoke from God the Father. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and we know from John 1 that Christ is the Word. And so, how do we summarize this whole passage? What, what is the break, breakdown, the takeaway we need to have? We need to know that God speaks to us through his word. All the miraculous things he has done do not eliminate the need for the word, but they further emphasize how reliable it is. And so we can all imagine moments in our lives that you just are taken aback in awe because you know it was something of God's working to bring about finances you need to pay a bill or, or uh, a, a healing or something along those lines. Just picture whatever you, you just know in your brain that this is God working. And so what does that further confirm? It further confirms promises such as Romans 8.28, that God is doing all things for the good of his people who are called and love him, that he's making us more like Christ, essentially. And specifically, we know that these powerful actions in the context of 2 Peter further confirm that Christ is coming back in power. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God. We know that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so then how do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Well, as we've emphasized from the beginning, our experience needs words. That who in here, raise your hand, don't be shy, who in here has an opinion about anything at all? Opinions? Opinions? Ryan doesn't have any opinions. Not a one. <laughs> so how does that opinion, how does that opinion get formed? How do we shape and guide these beliefs? Where do these opinions come from? If we're honest, we understand that we're, all, we're essentially sponges. We're being, we emphasize discipleship here at Revolve. We're being discipled by everything. You're being discipled by your church family. You're being discipled by your friends, by your family, by the news you watch, by uh, the things you read, by the, the entertainment you enjoy. You're being discipled by these things. They're in some way shaping, molding, guiding how you form opinions, if we're honest. A lot of times our opinions almost happen subconsciously. And so we know from verse 3 of 2 Peter that God has given us all things for life and godliness. And that's a pretty, pretty encompassing statement, that he has given us all things for life, that we can understand and interpret these experiences, these lived experiences that we have, that we form opinions. That everything, and this is my hobby horse, I'll pull it out of the stable temporarily, everything is theological. I would challenge you, 
that there's no category or any of your opinions that in some way, shape, or form can't be traced back to something you need to know about a biblical principle. And so I would challenge you, if you think you can stump Bill and David, send a question into the Revolve Recap podcast to see if they can, I didn't tell you I was doing this, pal, but here's your challenge for the week, to see if in some way, shape, or form you can stump them. Because everything is under God's authority, everything is under his lordship, and he has given to us all things for life and godliness. Now, that does not mean that there's not more explicit statements in scripture, and there's some things that you have, uh, I've heard one pastor say, jagged line issues. You have to tie together a bunch of biblical principles to come to a conclusion, but it can be traced back. And so that means as a church, we need to be a Bible literate people. We need to know the scriptures. We need to be saturated in the scriptures. We need to abide. We need to marinate all of the words we've used here at Revolve. We keep beating the same drum because it needs to be beat. We need to know the scriptures because they need to shape our experiences and not the other way around. And lastly, that brings us to guardrails of our faith. So going back to our intro, the guardrail of feelings driving our faith has crept into the church. And it shouldn't surprise us because Peter's about to touch on false teachers who will arise. Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, beware of wolves that will come in from outside and from inside. We need to be on our toes because we are in a spiritual battle and the enemy does not want Revolve to be a healthy church. He doesn't want it. We want it, but he doesn't want that. And so we need to understand that these false ideologies can creep their way in. And so uh, keeping with my C's, so we had content of the faith, we had character of the faith, I want to issue two guardrails, uh, or, con- or themes of guardrails. Two are infallible, which is a fancy word that just means they are perfect. They are without error. And one is fallible, which just means it's not perfect. And so the first two are core guardrails. And this is what we, again, we emphasize at Revolve. We ha- need the word and we need the spirit. That the Spirit was the one, as we saw in our passage, who carried along these men who spoke from God. That he is the one who inspired the scriptures, as we saw in 2 Timothy 3.16. And so then he has to be the one, if he's the one who has inspired the scriptures, he has to be the one who teaches us the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So it's the Spirit who teaches believers these things. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Which is why in the hub training, the emphasis is on before you even dive into the word to pray, because you're not going to do this with even the best hermeneutical tools. You need the Spirit to teach And so coming back, our second point, our second core guardrail is the word. That as as a church, we're in the tradition of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And one of the cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. If that's an unfamiliar term for you, I have it written right here just to help. Down? No, which one? There it is. Sorry. Thank you, Scotty. Thank you. Thank you, Dina. This one right here. Sola Scriptura, and it was one of the cries of the Reformation because uh, we needed the Bible to be our final authority. Uh, The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, yes, I am a theology nerd, 
uh, with a five solo shirt and referencing an old confession of faith, um, says it, it puts it much, uh, or puts it very well in terms of what sola scriptura is. In chapter one on the Holy Scriptures, they say this, that the supreme judge for deciding all religious controversies and for evaluating all the decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, human teachings, individual interpretations, and in whose judgment we are to rest is nothing but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit. In this Scripture, our faith finds its final word. That the Scriptures are our highest and final authority. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't lesser authorities. It just means that who gets to pound the gavel, who gets to make the final decision, is the Scriptures. And so that brings us to our other guardrail, our corporate guardrail, which again isn't perfect, which is the church. And so just because the church isn't perfect, we still need it because guess what? We're not perfect as individuals. That my interpretation of scripture, it needs to be held with humility because I don't carry more weight than the witness of the church throughout history. That we come together and we do theology in community because we're not perfect. And we have giftings of the Spirit that can help us understand and work together to interpret the Scriptures. We see in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the household of God. It is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That we corporately as the church, not us necessarily individually, though the church is of course made up of individuals, is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, which is the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we return to the days of Rome that our Protestant forebears kind of had a couple gripes about, and that there's a set group of specialists who then get to interpret doctrine for us and then tell us what to believe and what to do. No, we are all priests of God. We all get to wrestle and have the scriptures together as we work through how to both believe what is true, the content of our faith, and live it out and hold one another accountable. Kind of the metaphor that I, I put together to, to think through this is that the word and the spirit are the engine and the fuel, and the church is the car, the church is the vehicle. And that can take different shapes. It can look a little bit differently. The style can be different depending on the culture and the context, but it ultimately still needs the engine and the fuel or that car is useless. And so if a church loses the word and the spirit, they're essentially useless. As Christ says, he will remove their lampstand in the book of Revelation. And so what do we do? Quick action steps. Well, we need to, again, know how to hear and apply the scriptures. And so I, I'm an advocate. I think this starts essentially here, that our Christian life is a family. And when the family is gathered like we are today, then this is the, the, where the pebble drops in the water and then everything else kind of works out from here. And so we need to understand how can we can hear and apply the teaching from those who the Holy Spirit has given the gift of teaching, the ministry of the word, which is the elders of the church, better. We see in Acts 17 that the Bereans, they had the apostle Paul teaching them the scriptures, and they're still diligently searching the Old Testament to make sure these things are so. That they're not even just taking Paul's word for granted as he's saying, oh yeah, in you know the book of Isaiah, blah, blah, blah. They want to look in Isaiah and see, no, is, is he getting it right? Because they know Paul's not perfect. 
even though he was an apostle. And so how can we uh, do these things better? Uh, another easy action step, uh, Bill made the announcement. We have an Old Testament survey class starting tomorrow. This is a way to better understand the Bible that Jesus had and knew and quoted from. If you think of his temptation in the desert, he quotes from three scripture passages in the Old Testament to defeat the devil. This is Christ, and he's quoting from the Old Testament scriptures to put Satan in his place. And so that would be a great action step starting tomorrow night. Another one is pick a Bible reading plan that will more systematically get you through larger chunks of the scriptures. And so there's nothing wrong with doing shorter topical uh, reading plans that you see throughout version, but there is a benefit to working through larger chunks of the Bible. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a fast pace. It can be a slow pace. But just know that you have a goal of, I want to get through all of the epistles, or I want to get through all of the New Testament, or I want to get through the prophets, or I want to get through the Old Testament, or I want to get through the whole Bible. Pick a plan to help you work through and saturate yourself in the scriptures. Uh, the hub training. If you haven't taken the hub training, take the hub training. The first letter for ABCs of discipleship is abide. They will give you very practical tools to help you abide and be saturated in the scriptures. Another one. So if you've got your step three, if you've got your Bible reading plan set, this one is in addition to that. So if you've got your Bible reading set, and in addition to that, you do Netflix, or you do Hulu, or you do sports, or you do baking, or you read fiction, or you rock climb, or you hike, or you do X, Y, Z, fill in the hobby, I would encourage you that once a year, grab something instead of Netflix, like a biblical studies book, or a systematic theology, or a biblical theology, or something, and just once a year, read through something like that, or in those lines. Any of the elders would be willing to give you recommendations. My love language is books. My wife hates it because she's got more books than she could ever read, and so do I. But anyway, and then lastly, and I want to drive this point home, we need the word, we need the spirit, so obviously have your Bible ring plain set, but theology these things, this content of our faith, this character of our faith is meant to be done in community. That this stuff gets done in your families at home, it gets done within the church. That the community is essential for us to live out the character of the gospel and it's essential for us to give encouragement in the content of the gospel to each other. That we build one another up in love. And so we need our community. We need our church family to do this. And so in light of that, I'd love to have uh, the seed team who's going this week and stand up in your seats if you're here so we can pray for you as a community. I think some are teaching. I think some have Revolve Kids, so we'll pray. God's omnipresent. But all right, so I'm just going to pray for this group, and as a church family, just pray with them as well with me um, as they are going to um, witness with advances in a uh, difficult soil. And so, Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have a church that seeks to mobilize ambassadors, soldiers, um, Lord, any of the other beautiful metaphors, heralds of the gospel, Lord, that can proclaim uh, both your saving work and also your powerful coming. Lord, that we know you are coming again. We know you will judge the living and the dead. I pray for those going on the seed trip this weekend. Lord, that you would protect them this week from the, um, 
Lord, just the attacks of the enemy, Lord, the frustrations of life, Lord, allow them to find uh, time to rest and find joy in your word, Lord, that you would lead them beside quiet streams, Lord, that your rod and your staff would comfort them, Lord, so that they can serve you. Lord, we pray for fruit. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and boldness as they uh, seek to evangelize um, uh, multiple ethnicities and nationalities up in New York. Lord, and even in such an abbreviated time, Lord, we pray that they would just have, um, as if they were there for a week, Lord, the amount of fruit that they will see. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are coming again. Lord, we know that you are powerful. And, Lord, you are glorious and you are majestic. And, Lord, we have a beautiful gospel to proclaim. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.